much larger gathering than I anticipated. Um, this is awesome. Glad you're here. Uh, the, uh, for those of you who don't know, some of our church, uh, many, is it fair to say many? I don't know how many went. But we have a marriage workshop weekend in Ventura, California. Um, so some of our folks are there and some of y'all are here. Uh, but today, what I'd, I'd love to do, uh, welcome to, to those uh, watching on YouTube. Um, I, I had hoped it would be like a small enough group that we could have a conversation, which affects YouTube folks. I'm very sorry if you're watching online. Um, but maybe we can do some of that still. Uh, and I don't have any slides for you. So we're going back to like the 20th century. Um, so if you have like a paper Bible, if you have a paper Bible, I'm really impressed with you. Um, you could use your phone too, though. But we're going to look at the gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 11, beginning in verse 25. I haven't uh, really given any kind of title to uh, my, my thoughts this afternoon. Uh, if I had to, though, it would be something along the lines of going beyond do's and don'ts <laughs> in our understanding of God. Because I think that's precisely what this passage describes. Now, how, how many of you have experienced trying very hard to make changes in your life? Uh, to maybe change some bad habit, some stupid way of thinking, maybe even just to change some of your rhythms in life. And you set out and you do all of the correct things to achieve that change in that new life. And you fail and you feel like you're beating your head against a wall. <laughs> and the harder you try to make things fit, the worse it can feel. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe it's just me. I don't, that probably don't, shouldn't talk about this in front of church, but oh, whatever. Um, I don't know if you've ever been arrested. I hope you haven't. Um, I have, uh, unfortunately. Um, and what happens when you get arrested is they put, you know, they put the handcuffs on you. This is terrible. Handcuffs are designed so that if you try to squirm and get loose, they get tighter. And holy cow, it's so painful. Don't ever break the law and get arrested. The handcuff experience alone is the worst. Sometimes I feel like my life is like a pair of handcuffs. The more I squirm and try to make things fit on my own energy, the tighter it feels. Does that experience make sense to you? Do you know what I mean? And it creates a situation where we just feel burdened. We feel heavy. At least I do. We feel hopeless. I've even heard a lot of friends who have been in the faith for a long time use language like, I'm getting ready to give up on the whole Christian thing. And here's why. Because it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. I've thought about that a lot. I'm not sure what we mean by work. Um, and that's a good question. What do we mean when we say, well, the, the faith works? I'm not sure that's the right 
lens through which to look at it. But I think I understand what's meant when people say that. Because sometimes it can feel like you're doing all the things required of you by your religion. And in your mind, you're doing all of the things required of you by God. And yet it feels like the harder you try, the more you find yourself going on your own energy. And the tighter the feeling, the more constricting it gets and the more frustrated you get. Maybe it's just me. Uh, I tend toward melancholy and depression. But this, this passage is like an invitation To the thing I think we're all looking for, the thing that in the deepest parts of us, all of us, and that's that's one thing I'm becoming more and more comfortable with as I get older. Every human being is wired to desire the same exact thing. We are all actually in pursuit of the same thing. We were made by the same one and we've all been given the same Uh, experience of him or an opportunity to experience him. But I think uh, at least a, a word that makes the most sense to me for what it is we all, all of us, not just us in this room, but all of us, all people, we desire rest. <laughs> And I don't mean relaxation. I went through a season a long time ago where I started to observe a Sabbath every week. It was really helpful. And I would, I would do a lot of recreating. I would lie down. <laughs> I would go to the movie, uh, the AMC movies especially. We don't have an AMC movie theater here, do we? We have Mary Pickford, though. Mary Pickford has the reclined seats. Why waste your time going to any other theater that, than one that has the recline seats? I used to go to the AMC theater like every week at least and fall asleep there in the movie. I did, saw a lot of movies, but I didn't actually see them. But I found in all of my recreating and attempts at resting, I was still very restless. You can be completely relaxed But your life can be restless. And we try to rest by relaxing harder. <laughs> the handcuffs get tighter. Um, but listen to this. Let's, let's read from, from Matthew's account here. Uh, chapter 11, verse 25. These will probably be familiar words to you, even if you've not read Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I'm in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What, what, what is this that we just read? What kind of speech is that? Verse 25 through 29, or 27. Who's Jesus talking to? What do we call that kind of speech? Prayer, right? It's, it's some form of prayer. Specifically, he says, I, I confess. The idea is probably, like, it's praise. Jesus just turns and begins praising his Father. There's a reason why. 
Um, he, he seems to be most excited about the sort of person to whom God reveals himself. Now, Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, uh, comes in pretty nice blocks. It's pretty easy to see Matthew's literary structure, what he's, what he's attempting. Chapters 11 through 13 form a, a pretty tight structure. They work together really well. Now, the beginning of chapter 11, how many of you have heard of John the Baptizer, John the, John the Baptist? Probably know something about him. He, we picture him with a wild beard, eating insects, living in the desert, living like a prophet. Now, John the Baptist was, is, is described as coming ahead, rolling out the red carpet, kind of. But a herald announcing the coming of Yahweh to his people. And Jesus comes along and John gets arrested for this behavior and other things he said that people don't like. And John is in prison and he asks uh, some of his followers, go ask Jesus if he's the one we're waiting for. Because John was expecting something a lot different, apparently, than what Jesus was doing. He thought he was sent to roll out the red carpet for Jesus. And along come Jesus. Where's the judgment? Where's the reform? Where's the the going after Rome? Where's the going after the White House? And Jesus tells his followers of John's when they come to him, say, John told us to ask, are you the one we're waiting for? He's like, here's what I'd like you to tell John. Tell him about all the healing." that people are experiencing as they come to me. And then go back and tell them. Just tell them about that. Let John do the math. <laughs> Calculate it. And then he goes on to describe, we looked at some of that last week. I think Scott pulled some of this up in, in a parallel chapter in the Gospel according to Luke. But then Jesus goes on to like denounce these cities in the north who didn't accept his message. He just says, it's going to be rough for you because you've basically, you've decided not to get on the only train that's coming, so to speak. (laughs) But then he goes into this praise. He says, I praise you, God, that you have hidden these things. God is hidden to people. Isn't that a frightening thought? That God could be right in front of you and we do not see him or recognize him. Here's what's even more frightening. When we're convinced that we do, but we do not. (laughs) And a lot of times, for especially religious folk, pew-sitting folk like us who come every Sunday, who read the Bible and say our prayers and and do our uh, works of charity, We can tend to think that encountering God is merely a matter of studying texts, figuring him out. This doesn't always equal a true encounter with God. And Jesus is praising God. It's amazing, Father. Your will was to hide it from those working so hard to see it. But for those who are like children, they see it. All the religious folk that should get it, even guys as holy as John, still have to wrestle to see what God is doing. 
Now, if John the Baptist has to wrestle to see what Jesus is doing, you know we're going to have to as well. We're going to have to swallow some things and overcome some obstacles that are in our path to even notice what God is doing. You know who does that well, just accepts life as it comes and embraces it? Children. <laughs> Children do that well. In fact, I think that's really the, the, the primary characteristic of a child that Jesus is always trying to put on display. Not that they forgive you quick or something like that, or they're cute, but that they're open. They're very open. They'll believe what you tell them. There's this line in, in Augustine's Confessions where he's struggling to believe what the preacher's saying. And the preacher's teaching these beautiful sermons on the Old Testament. He's like, I'm, I don't want to believe what he's saying because I'm not sure if it's perfectly right. And so I'm just going to be suspended in kind of like disbelief until I figure it all out. And he said, I hung there suffering. He said, I could have been healed if I just would have believed. But then he goes on to say, but I believed before I listened to people and I got burned. It's like he says, if you go to the doctor to get healed and the doctor hurts you, the next time you get hurt, it's hard to go back to the doctor. Those are kinds of experiences that make us not open. Hard to hear Jesus. Hard to be vulnerable like a child and just go where God or someone else might lead us. But Jesus praises the Father. Because God has revealed himself in the most surprising and unlikely place. And I actually am one of these folks who thought that by careful study and learning old languages, like I'd arrive at an understanding of God. Handcuff analogy. The more Hebrew and Aramaic I learned, the more Semitic languages I learned, the less I felt like I encountered God. Isn't that bizarre? There's something to that. To perceive what God is up to requires something that a child has. And this is really cool. Jesus uses children in the Gospel of Matthew to describe what a disciple of his is. If you want to know what a disciple is according to Matthew's account of the Gospel, it's a child. A child most embodies what God has always been looking for. Go ahead and check if you don't believe me. Go read the prophets. They're looking for the same thing. They're just looking for the people of God to be open. Be open to be surprised. He says, I praise you that you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. Now, is this saying that God doesn't like those with lots of degrees? <laughs> Like if you're a doctor, that's not who God's looking for. If you're a really smart person who carefully studies or you're very intellectual, you're not going to ever enjoy life in the age to come. Of course not. In fact, even by saying this, you'll see that by saying God is revealed to the children, what Jesus is actually trying to do is get people to begin to think like children. Not telling them, I don't want you but you've got to use a different part of your brain, mate. You've got to listen with different ears. How you doing? Okay, we'll see. Um, all right, well, uh, let's read on. There's so much happening in these lines. Uh, look at verse 28. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus moves from this prayer to God, praise of God, to now turning back to whoever is assembled there. And for Matthew, anyone who's reading, come to me, all of you who are burdened and labored. And he uses this image of a yoke, um, which is kind of a foreign idea for us. You familiar with what a yoke is? Like you put it on the neck of an animal a, a lot of times um, in, in the olden days, maybe we can say, where you, you'd, you'd get more out of your animal if you put two of them together. It's kind of like horsepower, right? Two horses are better than one. But you can't put like a donkey and an ox together because one's going to be stronger than the other. So you put two animals of similar strength and you're going to get a lot more out of them if you put them, yoke them together. Imagine plowing a field with not one but two oxen. So there's this idea of a yoke for an animal. It's a metaphor. And a yoke is used throughout the what we call the Old Testament to describe social or political oppression or burden. Israel's, in fact, in the Exodus, when, when the, they are in bondage under Egypt, it said they're wearing a heavy yoke in Exodus chapter 6. This is a theme of being like under a burden. Now, it wouldn't just be a, an animal that could wear a yoke. A, a human could wear one too. But the idea is to make the burden lighter. You can carry more. So if you're carrying all these things, you put a yoke on your shoulders, like a beam almost, that allows you to carry more and displaces the weight. It becomes a metaphor in later years uh, for, uh, there's a saying called uh, putting on the yoke of the, the Torah, learning, becoming a student. Wearing a yoke is to, is to learn. Jesus, Jesus is all who are burdened. And if we were to read on in Matthew, I, th- I think what he means, who he's talking to, are not those who just had a hard day at work, may- maybe. But it's those for whom the life with God has become a matter of do's and don'ts that have gotten them nowhere. In fact, he goes after some of the religious leaders. He says, you make everybody give a tithe. Every week, you, you, make them, you make them bring in what they're supposed to bring in by their religion, but you, you neglect to lift a finger to make the light loader for, load lighter for them. Man, can religion be a burden? Legalistic, hypocritical kinds of religion that we from time to time can find ourselves in all the while, I think, still searching for rest. And this is where I think a lot of us arrive at a place of it doesn't work. It's not working. I'm not finding the rest I was looking for. But Jesus here, you've got to come to me. If you're going to come to Jesus, you're going to have to act like a kid. You're going to have to act like a child. You have to humble yourself. 
You're going to have to admit that it's not working. You're weighed down. It's not working. I'm struggling to change. I keep trying. I keep showing up every week, but I can't change. I'm exhausted. What do you do when you're exhausted? Well, it depends if you're a kid or not. If you can, if you can see and come to God and admit that, Jesus says, come and learn from me. This is what he means by the yoke. Learn, learn here. It's the word later for a disciple. Learn how to be a kid again. <laughs> learn how to live a different way. But you're going to have to think differently. But if you come to me and learn from me, he says, you will find rest. He says, this ESV Bible says rest for your soul. Soul is a kind of unhelpful word for us because of uh, Plato and and Aristotle. The idea isn't just that your ghost would have rest. Your life. You will find rest for your life. You will live the life that God desires for you and requires of you. But it begins with coming to me. And not just coming. I don't think that we could talk about this. Maybe we should. What does it mean to come to Jesus? I don't think he means just coming and praying. Maybe. It probably includes that. But he goes on to say, come and learn. Come and learn from me. Now just think for a moment. What do you know about Jesus in his life? If you were to take Jesus' yoke and learn his teaching and, and live how he lived his life, is your life easier or harder? That's a great question. Both. <laughs> it's going to be challenging at times. Living in this world will make it a challenge. And it's just we live in, in what do they call it, hamburger temples, right? Our, our bodies. Like we're, we, are, we are meat. We, we're mortal. We are frail. It's scary and, and challenging to live in the body. Following Jesus will often make us feel like we're putting ourselves at risk for the sake of others rather than ourselves. It can get harder. But he says something, if you follow me, you won't be restless. You'll find rest. What you're looking for is the life of God. And if you want it, come and learn from me. Now, I think Matthew's put this here strategically so that we would, as we're reading and continue to read and think about what we've read already, say, oh, I'm supposed to do what Jesus has been telling me to do. That to come to Jesus is to humble myself to the point of saying, what I've been doing is not working. And I have experienced a lot of this in my life, um, trying to find rest. I, I don't know why, but uh, here's another quote from Augustine. Uh, it's not like I'm like a cheerleader for Augustine, but there you go. He came up twice in one Sunday. But, but there's, there's a line at the beginning of his confessions where he says, our souls are restless until they rest in you. What a line. What a thing to say. And I think I'm learning the reality of this, that I need to come to Jesus, open myself up to him and learn his ways. Learn how to suffer. Just learn how to suffer without tipping over. But to learn from Jesus, to take his yoke, 
Now, you know that I I moved here. Some of you might not know. I moved here um, about a year ago, about a year ago, almost exactly a year, a little more. Um, I moved here because I want to be here. Like God led, led us here. I feel like I want to be here. I love Scott and Danielle, and I knew them before I knew all of y'all, and that's why I came. But you don't leave where you are because things are going awesome. <laughs> Does that make sense? You move because it feels like it's, you want, you need to. You need to change whatever it's time to go. You, I also feel called to come here, but I also feel called to get away from where I was. <laughs> now, I was in Washington before I came here, and same story. I wanted to go there, but I also wanted to get away from where I was. And I came to Washington from Wisconsin, and I wanted to, to go to Wisconsin, but I also wanted to get away from where I was. And I went to St. Louis before that, and I also wanted to get away from where I was, but I wanted to be in St. Louis. See, I have this habit, this restlessness in me with all of the practices and the Bible reading and the praying and the leading the worship, and I do everything that a good church-going young man would do, yet every few years i got to pack up and leave because I feel so restless inside. And I, okay, maybe I shouldn't be telling you this, but who cares? Um, I got here, and what do you think I felt after a couple of months of 120 degrees? Where else does God need me? God knows I have faith because I go wherever he asks me to go. Really, I'm chasing and running from ghosts in my own life, but under the mindset of, no, I'm doing this for God. It was the first time in my life where this came into the picture. Come to me. Don't, don't run, Jason. Don't pack up. Don't, don't quit your job and run. Sit still and come to me. Learn how to be here, but you've got to learn it from me. You've got to learn how to be here and learn what it means to trust in God and to love others more than you love yourself, Jason. I know you're scared, but you're not going to find rest by trying to make yourself less scared. You're going to find rest by coming to me and actually, in your fear, loving others. That makes zero sense. (laughs) But see, that's what Jesus is trying to get across. I have to be like a kid to embrace that. I have to be dumb because everything in my mind tells me that's not how it works. If I'm going to be okay in life, I got to work hard to protect myself and preserve myself and go where I feel the safest. But here, for the first time in a long time in my life, coming to Jesus and learning from him, it's the rest that I've been searching for comes in. And it didn't come in from serving God, right? From being a minister. It came from coming to him. Where are you restless? Maybe you're not. Maybe you are just like, maybe you are restless. Ask the people you live with. Uh, Maybe they'll tell you if you're restless or not. If you are, I'm not saying you are, but if you are, if you're burdened, You're walking, especially with your religion, your walk with God, your notions of church, your notions of prayer and scripture reading. It's all overwhelming to you and you just can't make it work. You can't fit it. You can't get excited about it. Try this. Try coming to the Lord humbly saying, I I can't do it on my own. Teach me. 
But that first step of teach me, man, it's the hardest one for people like me because I'm pretty sure I've figured it out already. Now, what kind of rest is God God offering here? It was really interesting. I wish we were going through like a study of the Gospel of Matthew because you know what comes right after this? A controversy about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is all about rest. You know what Jesus does with the Sabbath? He essentially says the Sabbath, a day of rest and being with God and resting in him, is God's will for all creation all the time. One day. Imagine a day of rest. I don't mean relaxation. I mean a day of rest. A day of without restlessness. Resting in God. A day. Every week. Let's say every week we had a day like that. Imagine that expanded to Monday through or Sunday through Saturday, forever. And the calendar is just Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. All creation is at rest. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. It's not merely a day or religion. It's a way of life, coming and learning, overcoming through trusting, being like children, that rest floods into our life. Now, I can't explain it to you. All I can do is say, try trusting him. Try coming to him. See if what he's saying is true. Because if it is, it's worth a shot. But I feel like this is how we have to begin, especially for churches like ours. I've been in our church for almost three decades. You know what we need to factor into our notions of being a disciple of Jesus? This. To be like a disciple is not to be this really disciplined person who hits all the marks. I'm not saying that's what we said, but we can start to get like that. But to think of the disciple of Jesus as one who will come when we're not sure it will work. But even though we're not sure, we trust enough to step forward and experience the life God has for us. Well, with that, let's, let's take the Lord's Supper. I didn't intend this to be a sermon. This was supposed to be a conversation, but there's too many of you here. Um, so I apologize. Um, but we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper now if you don't have the thimble, uh, which, which I do not. Um, but Jesus' life moves from Matthew chapter 11, where he says, the Father has given me all things. Matthew's gospel concludes with the same idea, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. But this goes through the cross. And I think that's, what's, that's the most challenging part of all of this, is we know that Jesus' life isn't just spiritual practices. It's not just meditation and quietness and calmness. It's service, sacrifice, and the ultimate sacrifice. Do you think Jesus is at rest? Of course so difficult when we take this meal, all this discussion that I've been having with you about rest, to see the cross as a part of that. That even in death, in execution, there is life and rest. So as we open the cup and take the bread and we remember his body, we remember his blood, um, I pray that uh, you sense life in this death and life meal. Well, let's pray, and then we'll sing one more hymn together, and we'll be dismissed. We'll probably be done early, I think. Uh, But let's pray. 
Thank you, Father, for this meal. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for summoning us to yourself beyond religion, beyond working hard to find something that we can't on our own, but to yourself that you might fit us with the life of the kingdom of heaven. Help us to take up your yoke and to learn from you. And Lord, you are gentle. You are gentle with me. You have been gentle with all of us. God, I pray that this rest you speak of in the gospel could come and fill the world, which is in turmoil. It's almost as if restlessness doesn't cover where our world is right now. It's, it's not strong enough. This message of coming to you and the life uh, through you is the one that seems to be needed, Father. So let it fill the world. Let more and more come and find you. And through this meal, God, to, to see in it proof of that life, the death, the resurrection, the assurance. We thank you that you brought us together, God. As we have this meal, there is confidence and courage in the face of crisis in our own lives or even in our community that we feel. The anxiety that there are in churches even right now, Father, that we together come and find rest. Rest from thinking about who didn't come to church today. Rest from thinking about whether or not we're strong or weak. Rest from all of the fears we have. We can just, in your presence, live obedient, trusting lives. We're grateful, Lord. It's in Christ. Amen.